Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, hopefully, yesterday, maybe you tuned into the Warriors game. Uh, it was nice to see them give the Phoenix Suns a little bit of a spanking. Uh, but as you may know, even long before the greatness of Stephen Curry and the current dynasty of the Golden State Warriors, there was an electrifying trio in the early 90s called Run TMC, standing for Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, and Chris Mullen. And their fast-paced run-and-gun offense included a 162-point outburst against the Denver Nuggets during the 1991 season. 162 points. That's like NBA 2K video game level of points. And in fact, that season they became the NBA's highest scoring trio. Now, to give you a little bit of a Christmas story, there was one Christmas break. I was in college at the time. I know some of you weren't even born yet. But uh, I was on Christmas break for college, and I was hanging out with a bunch of buddies. And we saw Chris Mullen. If you don't know which one that is, that's, that's the one on the far right. He's, he's the white guy. And we saw him. He was walking his way towards the gym. And so what did we do? Of course, we started chasing after him for a, photo for a photo with him or maybe an autograph. But it probably wasn't the best idea because we looked like this Asian wannabe gang of thugs like running towards him. And so he saw us and he literally started running the opposite direction back into the gym to escape us. And I want you to be thinking about for, for yourself this morning, what star are you chasing? Now, it may not be a super fan of a celebrity or a sports figure. You may not be a uh, devout follower of BTS or the whatnot. But all of us spend our time, our energy, our dollars, and our days following some star. Things that we think will give us fulfillment or freedom or meaning in this life. And perhaps the historical account of the Christmas story might shed some light on our own hearts, our own priorities and purpose. And so if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn in it to Matthew chapter 2. Don't worry, if you don't have one, we're going to put it up on the big screen. But we're entering history in a season where there's very little hope. The Jewish people once again find themselves under subjugation and oppression of someone else. This time it's not Syrians, Babylon, Medo-Persia. It's the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Romans, they've appointed a local regional governor-type king that the Jews did not elect themselves. And this man, he calls himself Herod the Great. That's his own designation for himself because he has done a lot of great things. He's raised a ton of money for Jerusalem. He rebuilt God's temple, and in fact, what he did was he would mark every 36 by 12 foot stone with his personal insignia, so that if you're a Jewish person, every time you go to your place of worship, you're reminded whose generosity, whose power built this place of worship for you. And in fact, he built his own palace next door to the temple. So it's like there's two houses in this neighborhood, one belongs to God and the other to Herod. He thinks of himself as pretty great. And he has done great things, but he also rules with an iron fist. During his regime, he outlawed, outlawed free speech, free assembly. He assembled secret police to spy on dissidents throughout the city. And he made people he didn't like disappear. And although God has consistently liberated his people from, a, 
from oppression throughout all of history, for some reason during this period, there didn't seem to be any help, any hope coming. In fact, God had not spoken a direct word to his people in almost 400 years of silence. And so you can imagine there's no wonder that the attention and the devotion of God's people began to stray, start to chase whatever star is in front of them that might lead them to whatever they perceive to be a better life. And so I want you to see for yourself if you relate to any of the circumstances that are happening in the Christmas story this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So there's these wise men from the east. They are basically men of philosophy and history and science, advisors to kings, and they note this incredible cosmic event happening in the heavens. This new celestial body is shining in the night, and these are men who have studied all kinds of world religions, and they've, including Hebrew scriptures, and they find that it reveals a prophetic sign of a coming Messiah king. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, they learn that a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel to bring freedom and fulfillment forever. And so in verse 2 of this passage, they want to meet this king, they want to worship him. And so excited, they pack for a long journey that's going to take weeks from where they live. And even though this star has disappeared from the night sky, they know approximately where it first appeared. And so cross-referencing with scriptures, they head west towards Judah, Judea. But did you notice in this passage, where did they go? Not Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. They came to Jerusalem. And the question I want you to ask, is why? Because Jerusalem is the capital where kings rule. It is the hub of trade, of economic power. It is the center of worship where the temple of God is located. And so for these men of wisdom and of study, of learning, if they're going to leave their families and the familiar behind to go and seek someone or something as a greater priority than all the things they've left behind, to bow before this thing as Lord it better be worthy. It better be proven in success, in influence. And so they assume that is where we must go. The star must be parked over Jerusalem. You see, many of us, we make the journey of life about chasing a worthy goal, a worthy Lord to worship. And like the, these men, we mistakenly believe that the star that we are looking for is the success in Jerusalem instead of the Savior in Bethlehem. And so like the wise men, you and I, we may pursue the star of success. Well, if I just get the right grades or the right guy or the right girl, then I can get the right job that will either fulfill me or at least pay for me. Then I can buy the right house and have the right stuff, have the right influence to make a difference in this world because that's what I care about is having a, making changes and being a better person and helping to make society better. Or 
I chase the success of if I can just have children and raise my kids to be happy, healthy, and even holy. Then my life is meaningful and successful. That's a star worth seeking and sacrificing for. There was an old woman at a funeral. And as she was reflecting on her friend who had passed away, she asked Pastor Rico Tice, do you know what failure is? It's being successful at things that do not matter. But success is hearing well done from the only lips that do matter. Now, you should be sitting here for a second saying, what are you saying, Pastor Judge? Are you saying that raising my kids doesn't matter or having kids doesn't matter, my kids don't matter? No. All these things we just talked about, in their rightful place, all of these can be a good thing. They cannot be a God thing, where we put it on the throne and spend our life chasing and worshiping these kind of things because their fulfillment is temporary and they make for a poor substitute God. Jesus is by far a much better God. And so I want you to be thinking about this morning What is the star of success that you are pursuing this morning? Where are you investing the most, the best of your time, your attention, and your devotion? Because whatever that thing is, that's what's really king in your life. You see, you and I, we often mistakenly seek success in Jerusalem instead of a savior in Bethlehem. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I don't relate to that. I'm not such a driven person. I'm not chasing something ahead of you, but I'm content holding on to something that's in front of me. Verse 3 reads on, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And so I want you to see in this verse that Herod is concerned, the king, the current king. You see, he is not the legitimate king of Judah. He is a half-Jewish collaborator appointed by the Roman Empire. So instead of celebrating the prophesied Messiah who's coming, he feels what? Troubled, it says. He perceives that another king, the rightful king from God, is a threat to losing all of his influence and affluence that he's accumulated in his comfortable life as the king. Now I want you to notice he's not the only one troubled. It says in verse 3, so were all the people of Jerusalem with him. Why are they troubled? Because even though the wise men who had come are not Jewish people, they've traveled a long way to see, to worship the Messiah, the Savior King. And as they enter into the city of Jerusalem, astonishingly, there are no signs of celebration for the birth of this new king. Can you imagine coming all this way and the very people who should be celebrating him aren't doing anything? In fact, it probably seems to them just like any other city, people who are caught up in the busyness, in the distractions and attractions of this life. Instead, we see in this verse that the news about A Messiah troubles the people. They're troubled. You see, they don't have it so good under the Roman Empire and under King Herod, but they also don't have it so bad. They don't want a revolution. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want any trouble. 
Instead, they want to hold on to what they have, and they're clinging to an alternative star. Not one to get ahead, but one to get away from the troubles of life. And so perhaps like Herod and like the people of Jerusalem, you might be clutching onto a star of comfort. Well, I just want to escape the pressures and enjoy the pleasures of life. I don't want any trouble. I don't want to be troubled. For some of you, perhaps you've been hurt very deeply by life over this past year. And so you seek comfort and escape from pain. And now there's nothing wrong with enjoying a glass of wine or going on vacation or having hobbies or having a nice home. But the comforts of this life are meant to be a temporary rest stop on your journey. You're not meant to stay there and build a house there. Because God calls us to be on this journey, to move forward, to follow the right star. And for some of us, as we seek out the comforts of life, it turns to darker things, where we find our relief or our release in regularly getting stuff or getting fed or getting drunk or getting high or exploiting sexual gratification outside of the holiness of marriage till they are no longer a rest stop but you settle down there into secret sins, secret addictions. And these things that were formerly your escapes, you can no longer escape from. You see, that's ultimately where the road leads. When you make self-medication and gratification the star that you're following, the idol that you put in place of Jesus. So let me ask you, what star of comfort are you clutching? Now, don't get me wrong, it is always okay to rest, to recharge at a rest stop of comfort. Just don't build your home there. You're meant to move forward, to continue following a better star. Now, at this point, (laughs) you should be thinking, this coming Messiah is supposed to be good news, right? Isn't this supposed to be good news? Why is there so much threat to our priorities and our performance or the comforts that we cling to? Verse 4, this is Herod after he's being troubled, the people are troubled, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, I mentioned to you that Herod, he had rebuilt this temple for the religious community, and so you can imagine him possibly posing in front of this historic building with a Bible for his photo op, but he himself is actually unfamiliar with Scripture, so in verse 4, he has to ask the religious leaders where the prophesied Messiah is going to be born. And they answer him in verses 5 through 6 by quoting scriptures. They cite a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, though it is small amongst the clans of Judah, from there the king of Israel will arise. Bethlehem. Now, if you don't know, Bethlehem is the antithesis of the bright lights of Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem is a big city, but Bethlehem is a little town. It's not 
home to the capital or to the temple. It is a backwater rural village of simple working class folk, insignificant to human eyes. And they also cite, as they're telling Herod these things, from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, that this king will not come with the iron grip of a tyrant, but with the tender care of a shepherd. And so this is a humble king who will quietly arise from a humble place, not wrapped in the trappings of wealth or power that our world respects. And so it's unsurprising that the people of Jerusalem and King Herod himself are unaware and uninterested in the coming of this king. Because even back then, just like our world today, we have a tendency to respect those who have financial power, political power, or even religious influence. That's why we tend to follow things like celebrity news, or celebrity presidents, or celebrity pastors. And the big idea of the passage this morning is that you and I need humility in order to follow a star that leads to a humble king. And the reason why I say that, let me, let me put it to you this way. Let's say that I brought my youngest, my two-year-old son up here on the stage. If I brought Chili up here and I announced to the church, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the new pastor who will lead the church, my son Chili. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, he is not theologically educated. He's not uh, exactly uh, biblically trained. He has very little ministry experience. I would guess that about 50% of what he says is unintelligible to humans. But he's terrific at playing with trains and is almost potty trained. You would say, Josh, you're an idiot. We're not going to follow that guy as the new lead pastor. But when we look at this passage, I think it would be more like if you didn't know me, if I was a stranger or perhaps a carpenter from a third world country, and you not knowing me or my background, I come and, and I say, this is my two-year-old son, and he's not only going to be your new lead pastor, he's going to be your next president. I think that you would find that a little hard to swallow, a little hard to follow someone from such humble origins. So it requires humility to follow this baby, this Jesus. But it is vital that Jesus comes to us in the humility of Bethlehem instead of the glory of heaven. In the movie, The Last Emperor, this young man is anointed the last emperor of China. He lives a life of luxury, and he has thousands of servants at his command. Now, his brother asks him, well, what happens when you do something wrong? When I do wrong, someone else is punished. And so to demonstrate this, he takes a jar and he breaks it on the floor. And then a servant, one of his servants, gets beaten for it. But in the Christmas story, Jesus reverses the pattern that when the servants err, when we sin, the king is punished. Because forgiveness is only free because the giver paid the cost as the God who humbled himself to become a man. The king who sacrificed himself, his power, and his privilege to be a savior. And so when we read this story, I want you to get the flavor of what's happening, the contrast between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. This is good news. It's great news. So what's so hard about humbling ourselves? 
to come and follow this humble king. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, we see that King Herod, he seems to be pious and humble, that he wants to find this Messiah and worship him too, and worship the Messiah alongside the wise men, but it's a ruse. You see, if you read later on in this passage, in verses 16 through 18, the true motive of his heart erupts in a furious rage where King Herod, he ruthlessly orders the murder of every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding region, two years old and under, just to be safe. All the, all the boys two years and under, including, that would be my son, Chili, to give you some context. And the reason why is so that he can eliminate every potential threat to his rule as the king of Judea. Now, you may be thinking, hopefully, if you have a human heart, that's horrific. And yet, I want to propose to you that you and I are not much different. And what I mean is that we're going to wrestle with the same conflicts of interest as King Herod. That like him, we resist bowing before Jesus as king because it threatens the lordship of what we have over our own lives. What I mean is, the Son of God came to earth to be our Savior, but the Gospel of Matthew is also about His coming as the King, the rightful Lord over the heavens and the earth, over all peoples and nations, over your life and mine. And so everyone, we love the idea of a Savior, but we're not as enamored with the idea of a Lord. The idea of surrendering control of your decisions and your directions and your destination to someone else, not even to God. And for Herod, he has a lot to lose if someone else is going to be king instead of him. And for you and I, the idea of having someone else be Lord over our lives, making decisions, being the king, is pretty rough. And what I've discovered after all these years of ministry is I find that most people who think that they are their own master, really, you're still a slave. It's just that your choices are controlled by selfishness or sinfulness, or that they're controlled by your pain or your past or your pride. But what if? What if you can be set free to serve and worship a different Lord, a better Lord, a life-giving one? So I want you to be thinking about what part of your life is do you still tend to seize control instead of letting Jesus be king? If you can think about what area of your life or situation that you just cannot let go of that control, that helps us to see, is Jesus sitting on the throne or is it myself or something else? Now, at this point, we should be seeing the beauty of Christmas, the humility of a humble king and wanting to humble ourselves. And so the question is, how can we respond differently to this king who's come to us this Christmas? Differently than how the wise men initially responded, than King Herod, than the people of Jerusalem. Verse 9, 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, the wise men, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. (coughs) Now the wise men, they didn't know at first where to go, but they now know where the ancient prophecies are telling them to go, and so by faith, they do. And along the way, their faith gets reaffirmed in that this star reappears before them, leading them to the very place where this Savior King was born. Did you notice how they responded to the, the sight of this star? In verse 10, they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. You see, there are many stars that you and I can follow that will bring us momentary happiness. But the star of the Messiah will lead you to exceeding and everlasting joy. When is the last time that you felt deep joy? And I wonder how long that lasts for you. And when they met Jesus, they know that the arrival of the Savior King prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, that this Messiah would bring the light of his joy and his freedom and his fulfillment forever as wonderful counselor, as mighty God, as everlasting father, as prince of peace. And so in verse 11, these wise men, these men who rub shoulders with kings and emperors, they fall at this baby's feet, prostrating themselves before him, offering the best of their gifts their praise, their lives in worship to him. And so this journey, it begins and ends with this heavenly sign that the star of Christ invites us to worship a worthy king. That as we encounter Jesus, we're invited into this great joy that erupts into worship where we are called to offer our gifts, our praise, our hearts, and our lives. And I want to tell you that that is the natural response when you really meet Jesus. Whether you are in prosperity or poverty, whether your life is experiencing success or suffering, that coming to Jesus, you encounter joy and worship just erupts out of you. And it doesn't always have to be happy times. I'm reminded of something that happened this past year. 7.30 p.m. July 28th, Christina Almendrala, she texted our growth group that she wouldn't be skipping our, our group's hangout that night because she's a little bit tired. But really it was the providence of God holding her at home because 30 minutes later, we received another text from her. Please pray. My husband Jovet had a stroke. I'm taking him to the hospital now. Our growth group, we were texting back and forth throughout the night, trying to get updates, and over the next several days, there was a constant stream of texts going back and forth. How is he doing? How are you doing? How can we help? And a lot, a lot of prayer. And at first, our brother Jovid, he wasn't able to talk after his stroke. He wasn't able to move 
his arm and parts of his limbs, and it was quite terrifying for him, for their family, for us as a church. And yet, and yet, by August 6th, he was still struggling to get words out. He was able to speak again, but the words came tumbling out difficultly. It was a struggle. But somehow, he was able to sing worship songs. And Christina reported that he was even playing the song Waymaker on the guitar, despite the physical limitations coming out of it. And I asked Jovan and Christina if I could just share a little bit, and quoting Christina's words, she says it much better than I could. I'm so happy that out of all the words and activities that Jovan has forgotten, that he still is, remembers to say amen. He can still sing praise songs. He still says praise to our Father. And so God has been reminding me, Christina, that he's here, that he's with Jovan. And I cry every time I see him struggling to speak. But I also cry every time God performs the miraculous on him each day. I want to tell you, this husband and wife, they are not only worshiping Jesus with their lips, but with their lives. Because they have experienced a humble and worthy king who brings the joy of that and comfort that the world cannot give and the crises of the world cannot steal from. And I meet so many people who are, and all of us are looking for our own North Star, something worthwhile to guide us, to give us direction and purpose. And so I want to ask you this morning, what star are you chasing? Success, escape, yourself, or a savior king? What is that object of worship that you pour yourself into to bring fulfillment and meaning and joy and life? It can even be good things, but they can't be a God thing. And the sad thing is that all these things that we pour ourselves into, all things eventually take their toll on us. They're takers, but Jesus is a giver. He gives his best. He gives himself to us. The things that we idolize and put in, in front of Jesus, they make a lot of promises, but only Jesus keeps all of his. The things that we pour ourselves into, they are not necessarily bad, but we allow them to control us as oppressive masters. But Jesus serves us as a humble king. And the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew is about a king who humbles himself to become a man, who sacrifices himself to become a savior, a humble king, a worthy king, a savior king. And when he comes, when you meet him, he turns our world upside down, but then he turns our lives right side up. He helps to put all of our priorities, our pursuits, our past, our pain even, and our pride into the proper place and perspective. If you are humble enough to follow the signs, to follow the star that leads to him, and so, whether this has been a prosperous year or a painful year for you, may the story of Jesus spur you to seek something, someone better. And would you take a quiet moment now to ponder 
What are you pouring your heart and your life into as Lord, as King? And would you consider chasing a better star? Would you join me in encountering the joy of this King to worship this humble King of glory this Christmas? Heavenly Father, as we pause, thank you for this Christmas season where we get to be together in this room, in your presence, in your family. But we ask that you would help us to look carefully this morning. Open our eyes to see what stars we are chasing. And it's not that the many things we chase in this life are necessarily bad. In their right place, they can be good gifts from you but they are not Lord. And so we ask that you would help us to see if we are chasing our performance, chasing false promises, chasing escapes from our pain, chasing our pride. Would you help us to bring these things before you and like these wise men, to chase the right star, to offer our gifts and our lives to a worthy and humble king.